0: So they have this period of time, this window of opportunity to basically strip the city of anything that they can cart back to Russia and also to uh, abuse and rape uh, the women in the city. And that's really the the sort of awful opening, if you like, to this extraordinary story. (laughs)
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm your host. Today's guest, the first of a two-parter, is Giles Milton. He's a best-selling writer and the author of Checkmate in Berlin, the story of Berlin in the aftermath of the Second World War. Now you heard him at the top there talking about a difficult subject, the abuse of women in Berlin in the wake of the Soviets' advance at the end of World War II. And the Allied troops themselves play a dubious role And it's important that we raise the issue. Now, Berlin was carved into pieces by the Allies and the Soviets, and Giles explores the uneasy relationship between the victorious powers, which then fractured and resulted in the blockade of Berlin by the Russians. The Allies then carried out an incredible logistical feat, which was the Berlin airlift, and the western half of the city was saved. Show notes are updated with all the links, and if you want to get hold of me, you can. I'm on the Twitter at Ollie wcq or you can email me at history at you can also get giles he's at giles milton one the new aspects of history magazine is out now and you can read about subjects such as the normans tourism in the ancient world and winston churchill and the culture wars so do head over to our website finally if you can subscribe or even give me a nice review i'll be eternally grateful I hope you enjoy my discussion with Giles on Berlin after the war. Okay, Giles Milton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Great. Well, uh, we're here to talk about your new paperback um, for your book that was out last summer, Checkmate in Berlin. And... I was just um, scanning over it again, having read it last year, but it's um, there's so much in it. So it's it's such a thrilling read. Um, but I, we're really we're talking about Berlin in the in the wake of of World War Two. World War Two's just finished. And so the Allies are, are, are looking at what to do with Berlin and, and Germany. So I was wondering if you, you probably first up just to talk a little bit about the world we're in in 1945 when
0: your book opens? Yes, so the the war has just come to an end, the Red Army has stormed victoriously into Berlin. It's captured the great prize, the German capital, the centre of the Third Reich, and the troops have come in um, well in advance of the Western Allies, who are still, you know, a long way back across Germany, so they've got the city to themselves. And thus begins, you know, over the period of two months, the most appalling uh, looting and raping and basically ransacking of Hitler's destroyed capital. Because the Soviets know that under an agreement struck at the Yalta conference, that Berlin is going to become a divided city. The eastern half of the city is going to be controlled by the Soviets and the western half by the Americans, the British, and the French. But they also know that the Western allies will not come into the city for about two months. So they have this period of time, this window of opportunity to basically strip the city of anything that they can cart back to Russia and also to uh, abuse and rape uh, the women in the city. And that's really the, the sort of awful opening, if you like, to this extraordinary story. Since you've
1: mentioned the treatment of uh, the women in Berlin, first off, I, it was something that it was occurring to me when looking over the book again. Because obviously, the the violent the violence of the rape against the women in Berlin was just horrific. What the Allies did was was in no no way comparison. But as the Allies had a lot of resources in Berlin, uh, the Allied soldiers were able to sort of persuade uh, female Berliners. With, you know, with with luxuries and things like that, which obviously isn't a violent rape in any way. But the way the Allies treated the uh, Berliners is rather questionable, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, when the Western soldiers came into Berlin, particularly the Americans and the British, they uh, had they were equipped with food, with cigarettes, with, with all sorts of things that the desperate Berliners, and particularly Berlin women, needed. They needed food to keep their children alive, you know, and babies were starving. It was a desperate situation. There was no food, there was no, you know, there was no electricity, there was no gas in the city, there was no running water. This was a city in total ruins. So, of course, that when um, the mainly women, of course, there were very few men in, in, left in Berlin at the end of the war, the women, they needed food. They turned to these Allied soldiers uh, and formed relationships with them. Now, um, you know, <laughs> was this a form of prostitution or not? It's, it's debatable. But certainly uh, they, they, they entered into relationships. They benefited out of it because they got the food they needed for their children and the allied soldiers were very happy after fighting their way all the way to berlin to find themselves in the arms of a fraulein Uh, they
1: were they were really advised against it or ordered against it, really, weren't they? No fraternisation was was a was an order, wasn't it?
0: Yes, frat- no fraternisation. This was strictly prohibited. Allied soldiers were not allowed even to talk to Berliners. But of course, uh, you know, and and the um, the it, it, it earned them a sixty dollar uh, fine if they were caught fraternising with the enemy. And this led to the uh, the sixty dollar question, which was um, proposing to have sex with a German woman. Uh, but uh, obviously this was totally unenforceable there was no way that the allied commanders could stop their troops from uh, going to from sleeping with the uh, berlin girls um so you mentioned the yalta conference and
1: um this this raises another question and i guess early on in this podcast we're dealing with some rather difficult subjects but the next one i wanted to because i was looking at the checklist of the yalta conference one of which is denazification so I don't know if it, I noted in the um, the list of agreements that the Allies agreed to carry out denazification, but that was that was dealt with rather differently by each of the uh, the Allied sectors. I don't know if we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but um, I, w- I wondered if 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 that
0: was worth talking about early on. I think it is because this was an important part of the um, of, of post uh, Nazi Germany basically that um, Nazism was to be eradicated, so this great idea of denazification where every single person in Berlin and indeed in Germany had to fill in a, 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 a multi uh, question questionnaire. Um, you know, explaining their past, what they'd done during the Nazi regime. And the idea was to, to filter out those who'd been uh, you know, travelers with the Nazis, those who'd been deeply implicated in the Nazi regime, and those who had not had anything to do with it whatsoever. Um, but of course, the, different, the four different powers saw this in very different ways. The Americans took it very seriously, as did the British, actually. Um, the Soviets, rather less so. Um, in fact, the Soviets were really determined to bring on board anyone who could be useful to them, whether whether it be a scientist, a physicist, a rocket scientist, you know, anyone. They didn't care if these people had worked for the Nazi regime or not, if they could be useful to the Soviets, if they could be turned and made to work for them, then they'd have them on board. And of course, this also, up to a point, um, happened with the Americans as well, because famously they tried to gather nuclear scientists and rocket scientists and take them back to America, notably Werner von Braun, uh, who, of course, ended up designing the rocket that got the Americans to the moon. So they were all playing this game a bit, but it, certainly in the early days, the Soviets were much happier to just si- simply wipe this, wipe the slate clean, and bring on board any Nazi who, who could be useful to them. And they also um, exploited it for propaganda purposes. So the the famous famous um, conductor, Feuchtwängler, who you know Berlin was a famous uh, capital of uh, of classical music. And the Western allies said there's no way that Feuchtwängler could perform in Berlin because he was impl- had been implicated um, in the Nazi regime. The Soviets said, this is ridiculous. They said it amongst themselves. They quietly wiped the slate clean. They flew Feuchtwängler into Berlin and allowed him to perform one of the first great classical concerts of the post-war era. And this was a, a very smart move on their part. It was greatly respected and admired by the Berliners. Um, so yes, they were very prepared to exploit the denazification program, wherever it played into their interests.
1: So how successful then overall, and lumping the Allies and
0: and the Soviets together, were they at denazification? It was a rather ridiculous thing to try to do, because to do denazification on this scale, we're talking millions and millions of people. To do it on, on, any, on that sort of scale, you need a lot of people who are flu- fluently bilingual, who speak perfect English and perfect German, and that simply didn't exist. So it ended up being this sort of red tape bureaucracy that really didn't work. Um, and in the end, it sort of fizzled out. Um, uh, it, it was realized that it was simply not practical to do this on such a grand scale
1: okay so so you've mentioned the allies and the soviets and and what's funny is reading the book is is you get these kind of national stereotypes coming across um at least to me certainly and the russians are uh, yeah, yeah the, the russians are rather duplicitous the americans uh and i know we're going to talk about the characters involved but and the americans are sort of charging in the british are a little bit um yeah reserved obviously and then the french uh the French of the French.
0: The French of the French, as always. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to telling the story as I did. Uh, as you say, we'll come on to characters in a minute. But to tell it through the characters on the ground, is that um, the relationship between these characters and the, and the shifting relationship and and gradually the fallout between these these characters, completely mirrors. What was happening on a, on a much bigger sort of geopolitical scale basically so it enabled me to tell this big geopolitical struggle that's taking place a really titanic struggle for the future of europe and the west i'm able to tell that through the characters on the ground and that that made it uh, sort of appealing to me because it's a very um it, it makes makes for a very accessible way of telling quite a complex uh, political story well, it's interesting because
1: early on, not, not many members of the uh, of the allies realize they're in this titanic struggle. Like the, the Russians early on understand the, the situation. Um, but and, and, and Howley, Frank Howley, who I know will talk about, he understands the situation. But it seems like the, re, the, the remainder are, are thinking, well, we're, we're still in the sort of post-war glow
0: of, of, of partnership. Partnership is exactly the right word. They, The Western allies took as their template what, what they'd agreed with Stalin at the Yalta Conference, but that had been agreed a long time before. And by the time the war has come to an end, Everything has changed because effectively, the Red Army has, has moved into um, much of Eastern Europe and now controls much of Eastern Europe. So this gives Stalin an incredibly strong hand, a hand that he didn't have when he struck the agreement at Yalta. So, um, so the Western allies assume that Stalin is going to continue as their wartime comrade and ally, but Stalin has different ideas. He's looking at the map of Europe And he sees that a large part of that map is already red. It's controlled by the Red Army. And so he's going to use this as a position of strength to get exactly what he wants in the post-war settlement. And it is different from what had been agreed at Yalta. Um, So Stalin...
1: He kind of runs rings around. Well, the, we have the other conference at Potsdam. I remember you mentioning this. So I can't remember which conference it was that Stalin ran rings about around the the Allies. Or well, maybe I'm overblowing it.
0: No, I don't think you are overblowing. I think actually he ran ran rings around them at both conferences. Um, at uh, Yalta, he definitely got the better of both Churchill and Roosevelt. Roosevelt, of course, who was dying, would would be dead very soon after that conference. He was not on good form. Um, and uh, Churchill was criticized uh, repeatedly by his own ri- r- uh, team for being uh, under form, for drinking, as, as one, one member put it, for drinking bucketfuls of Caucasian champagne, which certainly didn't help his negotiating skills. Um, And then you have the Potsdam conference in the summer of 45. So just when the war in Europe has come to an end. And of course, um, Roosevelt is no longer there. He's died and he's been replaced by a very inexperienced Truman, who has really no experience of foreign affairs whatsoever. He's hardly ever left America before. And Churchill, who starts off at the conference and then loses the general election halfway through it. So he's replaced by Attlee halfway through the conference. Um, So this places the Western partners in a position of considerable weakness. Only Stalin, he's the last of the big three left standing on on the stage um, at the end of that summer. And this really, that together with the fact that his army is in control of much of Eastern and Central Europe, gives him a, a, a position of enormous strength, coupled with the fact that he knows that the that the American army is going to demobilize as rapidly as it possibly can. This is an absolute gift to Stalin because he suddenly realizes, well, my army will be the only st- st- power left in Europe, um, you know, within a few months. And he's going to exploit that. And so Germany is cut in half,
1: really, isn't it? And then and then Berlin is 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 cut into four. Um
0: yeah and yeah. this and this is what I, I it almost helps if you look at a map but
1: Yeah so I I I tell you what just I, I for our listeners I'll put in a link to the um to the
0: divided um um Germany in in the show notes Because I think if you see the map, you realise what problems the Western Allies are going to face. Because as you say, Germany is going to be split into two and the Soviets are going to control the east of the country and the Western Allies are going to get the west of the country. And they decide that they're going to do the same with Berlin. They're going to split it into two the Soviets get the east, the Western Allies get the the west of the uh, the, the capital. But look where Berlin is situated. It sits in the heart of Soviet-occupied Eastern Germany, basically. And this presents a massive potential problem for the Western Allies, because they are entirely dependent on one autobahn, on one rail link, and on the flight links into into West Berlin. They have to cross- Uh, Russian controlled Germany to get into the city. And it doesn't take a sort of military genius to realize that if the Soviets were to cut the motorway or to cut the the rail link into Berlin, then the Western allies are completely stuck. They're stuck in West Berlin with no hope of getting reinforcements or supplies or anything. It's like, imagine a sort of medieval fortress completely surrounded. And Stalin is aware of this and Stalin has designs on West Berlin
1: how are the uh soviet troops in dealing with their allied counterparts because i guess in those in that first sort of year um and i want to talk about the churchill uh, iron curtain speech but between which is a bit of a a tipping point um Mm. but prior to that how were the the troops dealing with each other
0: well this is uh when they first, when the when the Western Allies, uh, particularly the Americans, first met up with the Soviet soldiers, it was all uh, fun and games. They were all very friendly. Allies meeting, uh, uh, you know, uh, at the riverfront. But when they meet in Berlin, a rather diff- different situation emerges. The Soviets have been in the city for two months already. They have completely ransacked and looted what is going to be the British and American sectors, and the soldiers, the Red Army soldiers, are notoriously ill-disciplined. They are drunk for much of the time. Uh, They're rabble rousers, basically. And before long, there are clashes, constant clashes, fights, uh, fights in bars and pubs in Berlin between the uh, Western troops and their Soviet counterparts. So it becomes a very, very um, uneasy um, allied arrangement, if you like, um, from from day one inside the city. You know, you don't you can you can picture the scene uh, troops getting drunk the first thing they do of course is have brawls and this gradually degenerates into something far more serious where they start shooting at each other again often drunk and, and discipline becomes a real problem uh, and separating out these forces who are trying to guard their own sectors
1: Uh, So we should talk about some of the larger than life characters that were Hmm. in Berlin at the time, Um, chief among them being um, Frank Howley, Mad Frank Howley, who's just this like hugely attractive figure, really, Uh, and, and, and it comes across through the pages.
0: Yeah, he's definitely the most colourful figure in the book. He's really the hero of the book, actually. Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley. He was a real sort of cowboy figure. Um, He inspired great loyalty in the men under his command, and he is going to end up as commandant of the American sector. Now. When he arrives in Berlin, as he says himself, he said, I came to Berlin thinking that the Germans were the enemy, but he very quickly realizes that actually, it's the Russians who are the new enemy. Frank Howley, really uniquely, is the first person to realize that the the alliance with the Soviet Union, the wartime alliance that's worked so well, is at an end that the soviets cannot be trusted that they definitely their plan stalin's plan is to kick the western allies out of west berlin as a prelude to kicking them out of the rest of germany so before anyone in whitehall or in uh, washington uh, realizes what stalin's game is frank howley on the ground realizes we're in big trouble here because it won't take much for the Soviets to actually starve us out of the city if they want to. And once they've done that, they're going to move on and try and kick us out of Germany as well. So, um, you know, you could say he's he's really ahead of uh, ahead of the ball there. He really he's already seen what's going to happen or what potentially is going to happen. And he tries to tell Washington, he tries to tell the administration, Truman and everything what's happening And at at first. They won't listen to him. They don't want to hear because they, like the British government, want to maintain this alliance with the Soviets and and try and use it and and, and maintain it into the post-war period.
1: Uh, so the Soviets, they, they have a general, is it Smirnov to start with?
0: They have General Smirnov, yes, um, who's not, actually not there for very long. It, the, the real key player in the Soviet camp is General Alexander Kotikov, who comes in as commandant of the Soviet sector. And this is where you get this sort of titanic clash, uh, clash of personalities between Howling Mad Howley and General Kotikov. And their meeting, uh, you've got to remember the city um, while each sector sort of runs itself, so the American sector is under the Americans, the Soviet sector under the Soviets, they do meet regularly in this body called the Comandatura, which is to try and run the city, the, the elements of the city that need to be run as a whole. So they meet on a weekly basis, and they have the most fabulous rows and standoffs, particularly between uh, Howley and Kotikoff. And what's amazing when I was researching this book is that every single word ever spoken in the Commendatura, every argument, every fight between these, these characters was recorded verbatim. There were secretaries and stenographers recording everything. So you could go to the National Archives here and you can literally read your way through this extraordinary unfolding sort of crisis that's taking place in the Commendatura between these characters. You know, this is the, really the beginnings of the Cold War, and you can read every single word of it uh, in, in these papers, uh, uh, in these debates and these fights in the Commendatura. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. That
1: is amazing. So the, in the National Archives, we 've not just kept the sort of British side of the conversation it's it 's everyone they 're all in there are
0: they yes they 're all in there All the four main voices are all in there. And and it's worth mentioning, perhaps we've talked about um, Howley and Kotikoff, but what about the British one? Well, the British sent in um, this brigadier called Robert Looney Hind, he was known, a fabulously sort of eccentric and colourful British officer um, from British India, Uh, as so many of the officer class and indeed the troops who came into Berlin, into the British sector in Berlin, they'd um, spent their formative years in British India. And they came in it's almost like they came into Berlin, um, you know, expecting to run it a bit like they'd run the Raj. They, first of all, they requisitioned all the best houses they could. They requisitioned food. They they lived lives of luxury in Berlin and they treated the sort of Berliners who were left in the city as sort of, uh, you sort of rather lower class natives, you know, to be tolerated. Um, and so you, you have this sort of peculiar relationship between Hind and Howley. Howley can't quite, he can't quite make out this extraordinary character who's dropped out of british india and then and then you have um, general Kotikov for the soviets as well so it's this fabulous mixture of personalities and this wonderful clash that takes place inside the commentatura
1: yeah it's so funny reading how Hind is is trying to sort of be very fair-minded with everyone and how he doesn't want any of that. It's, it's fantastic. It really it, is.
0: Well, how yeah, I, I mean, uh, Brigadier Hind, Brigadier Looney Hind sort of thinks that, uh, you know, everything should be run uh, on according to fairness. And he sort of sees himself rather like a cricket umpire, you know, uh, making sure that everyone sticks to the rules. Howley is having none of this, you know, whatsoever. He just thinks this is completely absurd. You know, he's never seen anything quite like it. And he's determined to play. He'll play by the rules, but they have to be his rules that, that he plays by. Uh, now these meetings are great. Well,
1: one thing I was reading is that the, the food that they ate after these meetings, well, or is it, I don't know, was it kotakov producing the sort of incredible banquets? Because I was reading just this earlier before lunch, and uh, my tummy was rumbling uh, <laughs> just reading what they were eating.
0: It was just extraordinary. It is extraordinary, especially when you think that ordinary Berliners were starving. There was very, very little food um, in the city. And um, at the same time, the Allied occupiers were living the most extraordinary lives of luxury. They had um, access to, uh, you know, Enormous supplies of food and drink, particularly alcohol. Uh, they set up bars and nightclubs within weeks of coming into the city. Uh, there were, the, the food was brought in from, uh, was flown in from America and from elsewhere, and they had access, yes, yeah, to unlimited supplies, which goes back to the earlier point of why uh, Berlin women w- w- might have wanted to form attachments with the soldiers. Well, precisely because they could, uh, they could get, get food for them.
1: Mm.
0: Um, so, in 1946. Uh, Winston
1: Churchill, um, I, was it March, you, you'll know better than me, when he it's gives great, his great, Iron Curtain great. speech. Mar- I think it was March of 1946, yes. And what's what what, what was interesting about that is, well, A, it, it was this sort of huge event, the speech really did make shockwaves, even though Churchill had been, um, uh, he'd been voted out of office uh, the previous year, but he took the train with Truman to to that speech um, and and showed him his his notes. So so, Truman sort of almost approved the the speech, didn't he?
0: Yes. So we're talking, this is the the famous Iron Curtain speech, Mm. 1946. So like you say, Churchill is by now out of office. So he feels much freer to speak his mind. He goes to America. As you say, he travels to Fulton, Missouri with President Truman. He shows this inflammatory speech to Truman, who says, "Um, I think that's a good thing what you're going to say. And so Churchill duly delivers this speech. And um, this is a period spring of 1946, America and Britain is still clinging to the hope that they can carry on working in alliance with Stalin and the Soviet Union. What, um, Churchill does with his speech is basically throw a stick of dynamite into that, because he says famously that the Soviets cannot be trusted, that the wartime alliance is over, that they're putting an iron curtain down Europe, they're determined to wrest control of most of Eastern and Central Europe. You know, he says um, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended over Europe. Um, Now, uh, his his speech was well received in the auditorium where he gave it. But my goodness, in the worldwide press, it was lambasted. Churchill was criticised to the rafters for this explosive, warmongering speech as it was seen. Um, and of course, Truman, having told Churchill privately that he thought this was a very good speech to give, when he was asked by journalists afterwards, once the reaction had broken across the world, what he thought, um, Churchill, uh, Truman said, I had no knowledge of what he was going to say in this speech, you know, typical politician's response. But really it did throw a stick of dynamite uh, into, into everything. Stalin was absolutely furious with what had happened, blamed Truman for allowing it to happen. But really, it was a turning point because what Churchill had said was completely true. And the one person that agreed with him, agreed wholeheartedly with him, was Ernest Bevin, the uh, foreign secretary uh, in the Labour government. He also did not trust Stalin. And he also believed that the wartime alliance was at an end and that now uh, uh, that Europe was rapidly splitting into two totally opposing camps. Uh,
1: I I loved Ernest, your description of Ernest Bevan is is fantastic so um, but what I what I also loved about that uh, Churchill speech was didn't Truman offer Stalin a right to reply in the same university?
0: He did, he did, he said that Stalin should come over and Stalin said uh, that uh, alas his health would not allow it, in fact of course Stalin uh, probably actually was because Stalin was terrified of flying uh, he never flew anywhere. The reason why he wanted the conference um, in Yalta was he could go there by train. The reason he wanted the conference in Potsdam was because he could go there by train. The only time he actually flew to somewhere was to the, uh, the conference in Tehran. And he was absolutely terrified flying there. So, yeah, he had a, a lifelong terror of, uh, of flying.
1: So we've ended part one on Churchill's speech, and I've put a link in the show notes, which is a YouTube of that speech. So definitely worth hearing from the great man. I've also included a link to the map of Berlin that we were talking about just to give a bit of a description of of what Berlin and indeed Germany looked like at the time. Coming up next week we've got blockade of Berlin and then the airlift so I do hope you can join me then. If you can subscribe or give me a review that would be amazing but I'm now going to leave you. Thank you and good night.